Well, good morning. It is, uh, it's good to be back today. If you are new, you've come in the last month or so, you're like, who is this guy? Uh, I don't know him. You're like, oh, I didn't know that uh, Tyler was telling me one person that had come up to him and was like, you've got a great church. And he's like, yeah, but I'm not the lead pastor. <laughs> um, and so my name is Bland. If you're new, I am the lead pastor. I've uh, taken off um, most of this year so far just uh, due to some um, traveling that I've done speaking, but also uh, the elders and staff are really um, uh, gracious to let me have some time to go care for my mom and dad. Um, my mom fell right before Christmas, broke her hip, and the procedure she had done to, uh, to fix that was plates and screws. It turns out that was should probably have been just a full hip replacement. Um, she ended up having a hard time with a lot of pain. Uh, in God's weird providence, she fell again. When they took her in and x-rayed, they realized that the uh, first procedure had not worked. They did a full hip replacement, um, and I flew down and uh, helped care for my dad. The good news is she's actually doing really well, remarkably well, better than she did the first surgery. So um, you can praise God for that. Um, and so I appreciated the time off when your parents are in their 80s and they still live by themselves. Um, they And you're the one of two siblings. Uh, <laughs> You, you kind of got to go, uh, so I helped them out, uh, was grateful for that time away, but it's good to be back. Uh, last week, I got to watch the uh, live stream and just was really blessed with the, the worship, but then also just the, the testimony. If you were not here, uh, Janie and Stephen's testimony uh, about answered prayer, and I'll be honest, like I love that they were just really upfront that some, they, Janie was struggling to believe that God would answer this prayer, and God told her to pray for it either way, and that he was God whether he answered it or not. And so I love that testimony. It's so amazing, so beautiful. And of course, God did answer that prayer in a miraculous way. So um, that's why we're having prayer after the service today, not because we don't believe there's anything better to do on a Sunday afternoon uh, than to hang out at church. Um, and it's not just because we love each other, but we're actually going to pray because we believe God answers prayers and can do the miraculous. And so maybe, um, maybe you weren't even planning to stay, but I encourage you to, to hang out and maybe um, be a part of that. And like we said, there's always, an, there's always extra food. And so if you hang out, there'll be enough food for you. Um, the other announcement I wanted to hit that I'm super excited about, I've been working on a little bit this year, but um, we're a part of helping to establish a, a brand new school of ministry slash seminary here in the city of Boston called the Boston School of Ministry. Uh, this is uh, connected with the network that we're associated with, Send Boston. And um, it is providing a lay theological education as well as master's level, like ministerial level theological education. The ho hopes to eventually offer doctoral degrees uh, and like PhD cohorts and things like that as well. But the first class is being launched. It's like a pilot course um, this next month. And it's only meeting twice during the semester. Most of the work is actually out of the classroom, but it's being in March and then again in May. And it is called uh, Sharing and Defending the Faith. It's basically evangelism and apologetics, and I am teaching it. Um, so I'm excited. I love this stuff. I've taught it many times, and um, actually using one of uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's books for the course. So number one, you can sign up and not do any of the homework. Just go to the class. <laughs> you can register on the website. Just go to the class. Um, you can also sign up and work towards uh, an unaccredited certificate program. A two hour, you'd earn two hours towards uh, what's called the Boston um, Advanced Program Certificates. Or if you're interested in working towards a master's degree, um, encourage you, you can sign up uh, for that as well. And so 
Uh, would love to see, we already had, as of like Wednesday, we hadn't even publicized it and had six people signed up already. Um, we're thinking 50, 75 people around Send Boston will sign up and be a part of this. So um, I'm excited to be teaching this first course. <coughs> uh, you've already heard the text read. Uh, and verses 37 and 38 really are the core of this passage in the whole chapter. And some would argue that these are among Jesus' most important words. The most important things that he said were this invitation to come and to, uh, right, that, that if you were thirsty, to come and to drink and to have waters of, uh, rivers of living water spring up out of you. Um, and this picture is, is powerful and, and like, yeah, it's moving, especially if you're a Christian. You're like, oh, this is pretty powerful. But we really miss the impact of what was happening in that moment, of exactly how uh, crazy <laughs> it was, how insane in the moment, how, how utterly shocking to everyone who was there it would have been. The best analogy I could think of, if you'll walk with me, it's not perfect, but um, you know, Boston, we, we, do, we go big on the 4th of July, right? There, was the, uh, there were a lot of events of the Revolutionary War happened here, and so the 4th of July is a big deal in Boston. If, you're not, if you've never been here, they shut down Storo, um, and you're like, really? And it's like, yeah, you thought traffic's bad normally. Like, 4th of July is like on steroids. But uh, we all fight traffic, get downtown, we eat at a food truck or somewhere, and then we end up out on Storo, and then there's the fireworks, and you can imagine the music, uh, the, the symphony playing, and all of this happening, and you know, it's just the crowd's excited, and the last bit of fireworks ends, and, and the whole place screams, and then it calms down, and a voice comes over the loudspeaker and says, if anyone wants true freedom, let him come to me for a revolution of soul. Anyone who has faith in me, eternal freedom, joy, and peace will flow out of his heart. Now, can you imagine how, I mean, there would be confusion. There would be people going, I'll sign up for that. I kind of need some of that, right? Like, and, and, and especially if it was someone we knew, someone that had, had maybe had shown up on Independence Day and, and, and everybody had seen them and like heard them and maybe run into them or heard about the things they were doing and like that's the voice, that's the person. So all of these responses is exactly what happened um, in Jesus' moment. There was confusion, curiosity, there was anger over what happened. Um, and we're going to walk through that today and really try to understand the, the big idea simply is that Jesus invites us to find our deepest thirst satisfied in him. Jesus invites us to find our deepest thirst, like deep in your, in your soul level. And we're going to see this as we look at the situation, the invitation, and the reaction. The situations, um, as I said, not unlike a massive festival, right? The if you remember from last week, this whole chapter, chapter 7, happens during the Feast of Booths. And I know everybody knows what the Feast of Booths is, but just for the three of you that might not, um, just to remind you, uh, Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 16, and uh, Numbers 29 highlight this feast and how it was to be celebrated. It was five days after Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which was another huge feast. And so um, based on the timing of the festivals, we can actually assume that this was about six months after the feeding of 5,000, so that Jesus had already fed 5,000, done teaching, and, um, and there would be seven days of the Israelite people presenting their offerings to the Lord. And during this time, they would actually live in little huts made of um, palm fronds and leafy branches. If you've been around Brookline, a uh, very Jewish community here, and uh, during the Feast of Booths, you will see weird little tents show up outside of people's homes. And you're like, 
I remember the first time I was driving around, I was like, what's happening? And then it took me a minute, I realized, oh, this is the Feast of Booths. That family's Jewish. They've got a tent outside. They're not staying in it, but it's there as a symbol. Um, And the eighth day was a sacred assembly with a special offering by fire. And the stated purpose of living in the booths was to remind the Israelite people of their 40 years in the wilderness, their wanderings, and how God took care of them and um, was responsible for all that they ha- all the blessings they had in the promised land. So the week was also a time of joy as a final celebration and thanksgiving for that year's harvest, um, but also was a, a forward-looking event as well as they prayed for rain for the future. Uh, early historian Josephus tells us that the feast was the most popular of the three principal Jewish feasts uh, that brought people to Jerusalem. In fact, every male within 20 miles was required, uh, every male that was uh, uh, adult age within 20 miles was expected to be there. So you can imagine, as I said, 4th of July, the, the city was full. It was full of joy. This was a celebration. If you've ever been around Jewish people feasting and celebrating, it's not a somber event unless they're mourning someone who's passed away. It is festive, right? If you can, if you can think of just the Middle Eastern culture, it's very festive. And so um, by, New, by New Testament times, this tradition had developed during Jesus' time into a full um, actual water ritual. In the morning, the, everyone would gather at the temple. In their left hand, they would bring a fruit, uh, some kind of fruit. In the right hand, they would bring a combination of branches, either palm, mellow, and uh, myrtle. The priest would hold out a golden pitcher and would start the procession to the Pool of Siloam. While they were walking to the Pool of Siloam, and everybody's following, uh, they would recite Psalms 113 to 118 joyfully. When they got to the pool of Siloam, the, the priest would dip the pitcher and the people would say, Isaiah 12, 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Then they would follow the priest, high priest back to the temple. They would enter through the water gate. I mean, where else would you go when you're carrying a pitcher of water, but to go through the water gate. Uh, they would blow the shofar trumpets and they would end with Psalm 118, 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The priest would go up to the altar and pour out the pitcher of water um, over as an offering to God. And this pointed not just to the past of what God had done, but to the future, not just to the coming, hopefully, prayer of of rain for the coming harvest season, but to the ultimate uh, messianic kingdom that Christ would, that, that the Messiah, they didn't know it was Christ at this point, but the Messiah would come and usher in a time of shalom, a time of peace, a time of prosperity, where where all the nations and all the peoples would experience uh, the, the presence and the power of God. The prophet Zechariah said the feast was the very symbol of the future of the people of God, Zechariah 14. So at this moment, there were, this was a moment, and you have to realize that there were a lot of messianic expectations during this time. There were a lot of different messianic ideas of who the Messiah would be, what he would be like, what he would do. Um, and so there were... All this, this group of people, by the way, who were living under Roman occupation at the moment, trying to celebrate their identity and who they were, trying to celebrate the God they were following, trying to celebrate uh, and, and remember that one day he was going to bring in a, 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 an eternal kingdom. And it's this moment that the invitation happened. So that was the situation, now the invitation. Because this context, verse 37, says, Jesus stood up and he whispered quietly, No. Literally, I can't emphasize this more. He did not say these words. He did not speak these words. He cried out. Like we would say he stood up and shouted at the crowd these words. 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus was making this statement at the high moment of this festival after the, the, the pitcher of water had been turned out, poured out, right? At this moment, uh, as the crowd had, had marched to the Pool of Siloam and back, and he declares himself to be the living water. Not, not what the priest had just done. He was declaring himself to be the Messiah. He was declaring himself, indeed, actually, not just to be the Messiah bringing in a kingdom, but actually to be that source of eternal life. But I think it's, it's important to note the condition that he places here on the invitation, and that is thirst. He doesn't say, if anyone wants to come and have a sip, if anyone is feeling curious, Anyone feeling just a little parched, right? Anyone feeling like they could just maybe add a little extra something to their life? No, he says, if there's a thirst deep in your soul, if there is something deep inside of you that longs for living water to satisfy your deepest soul, he has it. If anyone thirsts, it's an invitation. So as you sit here today, what is your deepest thirst? What does your soul long for most right now? We could think of this as your deepest desires. If we look at our culture when it's about around this, the culture would say, well, you need to be true to you. You need to live your truth, which is saying live out of who you are. And, I, and in a sense, I, I, I can affirm, it's, it's saying be who you are, right? Don't try to be somebody else, and that's fine. But the problem is, if, if we look at our, the idea that our deepest desires and fulfilling those will be the thing that give us joy, meaning, and purpose, I don't know about you, but I'm a mixed bag of desires. Anybody else? I want to work out. I want to work out regularly. I want to eat well. I want to take care of my body, and I want to have biceps like Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> but there's another part of me that wants cheesecake and some Cheetos and just take a nap. Amen? Is anybody else? So, so when, it's, when they say be true to you, live your truth, which truth? There's a truth of me that wants to be this way, but there's a truth of me that likes food as well. So Jesus, in a way, kind of cuts past those things, the, the conflicting desires that we have, and asks what's underneath it all is a lack of satisfaction. A lack of having your soul's thirst met causes you to desire other things to actually try to cram in there to get it. Why do I want to exercise? Well, there's a holy part of me that's like, I want to take care of this thing until I go see Jesus, because it'd be better if I'm healthy, you know, and, and, and have some strength and can, and can endure. But there's also part of me that wants Chris Hemsworth's arms, right? Like, like you know, to be jacked or whatever. And so I, I, I can't even, in my own desires, I'm, I'm reflecting something deeper that I'm actually longing for. That is to feel secure, to feel loved, to feel content, to have peace in here. Not because of all the things I can do out here, but because of what has already been given to me. Jesus is cutting past 
the good desires, bad desires, past the curated image that you show to others, past the guilt and shame and the wounds that you carry. And he's inviting you to acknowledge that deep in the center of your soul is a longing for something that you can't quite get. And this world cannot give it to you. Why? Because only God can. Why? Because you were made for God. You weren't made to find your, your soul's thirst fulfilled in this world. Jackie Hill Perry says, said it this way, all of you, all of you are thirsty, even if you have a bottle of water in your hand. The real question, though, is do you believe God can quench it? When you discern your need, do you have a confidence in God that he can satisfy, or do you have confidence that is just displaced in money, in sex, in gifts, in glory, in intoxicants, in witchcraft, in ministry, in missions, in intellect? What is your water exactly? And where do you get it from? If it comes from any other source than God, your thirst will always remain empty. You see, underneath all those desires, whatever you think you're desiring or longing for the most right now in your heart and your life, underneath that is actually a longing for God to be connected to your creator, to be reconciled to the one who made you, So for those who thirst, Jesus says, come and drink. What does it mean to come and drink? I mean, that's, that's, you know, Jesus is a person. What does it mean to come and drink? Jesus, right? <laughs> well, I mean, there's communion overtones here. Of, that's why he said you have to take my body and the, the, the blood. But, um, but it, actually the parallel here is in verse 38 with he says, come to me and drink. And then whoever believes in me brings a living water will come out. You see, to come and to drink of Jesus, to have your thirst quenched, is to believe in Jesus. It's to have your faith in Jesus. John is absolutely enamored with this idea. 41 times in the Gospel of John, he uses the phrase, um, whoever believes in me, or a variation of it. Jesus is inviting you to believe him, in him. Not believe in him intellectually, no information about him, but to believe in him as you believe in your, the person sitting next to you. It's a experiential knowledge. Yes, there's information and facts, just like I couldn't have a relationship with my wife and, 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 and know her, uh, personally have an experience with her if I didn't know facts about her. Can you imagine that? You're dating somebody, you're like, I just don't want to know a lot about you. I just want to know if you and I really, if I really want to love you and be with you. Like, no, those two go hand in hand. But the problem is sometimes we are satisfied with intellectual knowledge of Jesus without the experience of Jesus. If I could say this, I think the biggest issue with, with Christianity in the West is that there are many who know about Jesus, but who are not actually experiencing the rivers of living water flowing through them. Oh, they can get up and they can recite Sunday school facts about Jesus. But if you ask them, is he, had, are you drinking of Jesus? Are you, is your soul being satisfied with Jesus right now? I think a majority of people who claim Christ in the West would say no. Maybe they had it at one point. Maybe they experienced it. I love that this, this, this invitation echoes Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. So if, there, if this sounds familiar to you, it's because it's, it's all over the Old Testament, but maybe nowhere more clear than Isaiah 55. God says through Isaiah, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. 
Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that doesn't give you strength? And why spend, why pay for food that does, uh, does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. This is the invitation that Jesus is giving at this feast that he's giving today. I love how he's talking to a crowd, right? And a lot of times Jesus's invitations or language is about to a people, right? Inviting a people to know him. But here he says, anyone. He moves from the corporate feast to the individual. Meaning in that crowd and in this crowd today, there are those who thirst in their souls. Thirst to know life, thirst to be satisfied deep inside of them. Why do we even thirst? Well, <clears throat> it's because we've become alienated from our creator. Back in verse 7 um, of chapter 7, Jesus refers to our deeds as evil. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, earlier in John, he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The sin, the sin blinds us to our, our, our need to be satisfied in God because you believe that you actually need this thing, this person, this experience, this achievement, this money. You believe that if you can achieve that, somehow your soul will be whole and well. The only thing I would point out to prove that wrong is You've wanted things throughout your life. Have any of them ultimately satisfied you? Do any of those achievements ultimately lastingly satisfy what's deep in your soul? And I love that Jesus' message isn't, hey, you guys that are thirsty, you stink, you suck, you gotta get it together. If you can get it together, you can come to me and I've got some water for you. I'll give you some water and it'll be okay. But you gotta, you gotta meet me halfway here, right? And meet me halfway? No, there's only one condition, is to recognize your thirst, to recognize that hunger deep in your soul. That isn't, the, 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 the gospel isn't good news for those who manage to make it. No, it's good news for all people. It's responding to an invitation. And some of you, I believe, in this room right now have never responded to Jesus' invitation. You, you don't know what this living water is like. But if you're honest with yourself right now in your heart, in your soul, that part of you that you don't really talk about to a lot of people, there's a, there's a hunger that's just been nagging, this thirst that's been nagging you for a long time. And you've bought into the lie that you can somehow get your life into a place where that, satis that is satisfied. Instead of understanding it's nothing out here that can ever satisfy what's in there. It's only what can come into you. The living water of Jesus Christ. And the power of his spirit. That's what he actually says here. It's right. The spirit is what comes and lives in us. Which means what? Jesus is both offering the living water. And he is the living water. He offers you uh, to drink, but he also is the drink. He is also 
the, 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 the well inside of you. Why do rivers of living water flow out of us? Because we're really good, right? Because we're really good Christians and we managed to just whip up a lot of living water out of us, right? Right? No, it's because Jesus, the well of living water, is inside of us. That's why when you have an inexhaustible resource then of water, then water flows. It flows in you and out of you. That invitation is to those who've never experienced it, but this invitation isn't just for those who've never experienced it. I believe this invitation is for those who have experienced it, but have forgotten. In the Old Testament, I mean, Isaiah 55 was written to God's people, right? It wasn't written to those outside of Israel, it was written to God's people saying, come and drink. And when Jesus is speaking this, he's not just speaking it to those who've never experienced it. He's speaking his disciples are there. His followers are there. He's telling them, he's reminding them. One of the most powerful images in the Old Testament related to this is in Jeremiah chapter two. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, be, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, again, I know we all, we all know what a cistern is, but just for the, like two or three of you that don't use cistern every day, a cistern... <laughs> is a vessel for storing usually rainwater. Homes use them, villages use them for irrigation and for uh, like protecting against drought. It's a, it's a structure that, that holds water over a period of time. And Jeremiah says that God's people have turned from him the fountain of living water. And what happens when you have a thirst and you've turned from the fountain of living water? What do you do? You go start digging. These are God's people. This is what Christians do. Christian, look at me. You may have experienced the, the gift of living water. You may have been, remember that time you were really thirsty and Jesus met you and he filled you with that living water. But every single day of your life, you live in a city, you walk among people, you work among people, you do life among people in this city, who are trying to get you to drink from other cisterns. This world we're living in, your own flesh is pulling you and the enemy wants you to go dig into another cistern. Why? Because if you're trying, if he can't take your salvation, that living water is still there, but he can get you to start spending your time digging in another cistern instead of living out of that living water. I wasn't sure I was gonna share this. I prayed about it last night and decided to, uh, to share this. Um, the fall was an exceptionally busy time for me. Lots going on. Um, lots of things happening. And I, uh, I began to feel this like, uh, I began to, to believe that the key to me actually being satisfied during that time was if I could just do it all, right? If I could just 
muscle the way through it, if I was strong enough, if I was capable enough, if I was smart enough, if I was strong enough, disciplined enough, all of that to just muscle my way through it. And bit by bit, I'm not saying anything happened horribly, but bit by bit, things did not go the way that I wanted them to. Bit by bit, I was being reminded of how powerless I really am to actually control everything in my life. I mean, I knew that here. You know that, right? You know that. I knew that, but I did not know it here. So what happened is I began to live out of this. Uh, and then as, as things were not going the way I wanted, as I was trying harder, I, I felt more and more shame that I was not achieving, more and more shame that I was not being able to do this or handle this or make that happen. And I've dealt with shame my entire adult life, deep in my heart. I began to go back and drinking from that broken cistern of my own strength and ability. And all that it did was remind me when I kept failing, it just kept reminding, it kept pushing me, try harder, do better, be more, right? You can do it. And when I was in Kentucky uh, for a week, I was doing some speaking around the state, um, and I met with a biblical counselor friend when I was in Louisville. I blocked out, he blocked out four hours for me to hang out, and I just told him, I was like, dude, I just need you to gospel my heart. Like, I, I need to come and listen to you. He's, he's a very wise, gifted biblical counselor. And while we were meeting and talking, he just, like, we just unpacked a lot of that and a lot of the feelings I had and stuff, and he, go, and, and he just he had a diagram. He was kind of showing me, like, that shame had become the reference point for how I was operating. It was shaping how I thought about my life, how I thought about myself, how I thought about my worth. And he just ever so gently reminded me that I had made that the reference point instead of the love of God. And it was so liberating for my soul to let go of that shame. So liberating for me to drink of that water afresh and anew, right? To, 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 to stop digging in this cistern of my own achievement and getting a little drop and going, oh, mm, oh, it's so good. I gotta get some more. Dig more, dig more. And couldn't find any, so then let's move around a little bit. I'll dig over here some. And just, oh, just trying to satisfy this deep longing in my soul to feel like I was enough. I was capable, I was strong, right? And Jesus, Jesus offered me that living water afresh and anew. Not because I deserved it, but because I was thirsty. What I was really longing for was to know that God loved me no matter how I handled things, no matter what ways I might have failed or even what I achieved. And I suspect that if you're a Christian here today, you have or are experiencing that in your own life. And you are digging in a cistern that will never satisfy you while you have been given the gift of living water. So behind that thirst, whatever that thirst is for you, Look at behind it and realize that you're really just longing to rest in the love of God for you, that he delights in you, that living water he has for you. And out of that living your life so that rivers of living water flow 
Listen, I'll tell you, nothing, zero in my circumstances changed. Not one thing changed. It wasn't like after I had the session and, and came home, it's like, oh, rainbows and daisies and sunny weather and whatever. Nothing changed, zero, zilch. In fact, some things have gotten worse. <laughs> but it was God who has, who has satisfied my deepest longing so that I no longer have to trust my achievement, my abilities, my success, and shame no longer has that power over me. I'll just ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus, what cisterns have you been digging lately? Jesus is inviting you to stop. Put down the shovel and come taste the living water again. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And then we see finally the reaction here. In verses 40 through 52, we see these different people responding to Jesus. This pastor friend of mine uh, picked up, he said there's four reactions of four groups of people here. There's the convinced, there's the cynical, there's the confused, and then there's the contemplative. The convinced is a group, um, they're at least kind of headed in the right direction. They actually cry out and say, like, is this the, the prophet that, that Moses spoke about? And, the, and, and it was a messianic prophet, uh, prophecy that Moses in Deuteronomy 18 spoke about, that there would be a great prophet over God's people. But, um, but that wasn't, Jesus was more than that. But others boldly proclaimed, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one of God who has come to deliver God's people. These are the people who had maybe seen some of Jesus' miracles and teachings, and they heard this invitation, and they went, yeah, he's the guy. Apparently, um, there were others, though, that were not as ready. These were the cynical. They had the convinced. You had the cynical who um, thought that the idea of a Messiah from rural, the rural area was insane. Wrongly assumed because Jesus was raised in Nazareth that he must have been born there when, in fact, he was born in Bethlehem. Apparently, they were too lazy to examine or to learn more. If they would, they would have discovered that Jesus actually met these criteria and these expectations. And it's the Pharisees here that show up, the religious leaders, right? They, they are the ones of all the people who had issues with Jesus. They were the chief people who had issues with Jesus. And it's a self-righteousness that shows up here. And this, we even see this today. There's religious people that, uh, that, that have a self-righteousness about them that, that believe that because they, uh, they've gotten where they are because they are really good people and they've gotten things together, they look down on anyone who doesn't behave as well as they do. They believe they're the moral police. They often shoot other Christians in the process of shooting those that aren't Christians. They just like spread, spread their shots, right, <laughs> over everybody. There's a self-righteousness there. But believe it or not, there's actually an irreligious version of this as well. People who reject Jesus because he doesn't fit their preconceived notions. He's rejected out of hand. And listen, I found this. Rarely do I have a conversation with someone who actually rejects Jesus who has taken the time to actually investigate Jesus. Ironically, rejecting Jesus without um, investigating Jesus and doing that, people violate their own moral standards of being open-minded and fair. Nicodemus points this out of the Pharisees, by the way. 
which points to the fact that, again, it's not just religious people that can be self-righteous. It can be irreligious people. Nicodemus says, hey, you don't judge a guy without, like, listening to him, right? But yet we find people who reject Jesus all the time without ever investigating or listening to him. Then we have the confused. These are the officers of the temple that were sent out by the Pharisees. By the way, third, they, they, they uh, failed to arrest him. This is the third time he's arrest, tried to be arrested in chapter 7, and all three times he it's, fails. Why? Because it's not his time yet. <laughs> but they were confused by him, and their superiors, when they returned empty-handed, uh, like, they said, why didn't you bring that guy we told you to? And they, they said, no one ever spoke like this guy. They were confused. They don't, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just a weird thing, right? He just talks weird, speaks weird, acts weird, like in a weird way that we didn't know how to respond. Some of those who find Jesus confusing press on and ultimately come to new life in him, but others are simply content to be intrigued by him. Oh, I find Jesus interesting. He's just an interesting figure. Really? That's nice. How much have you spent time studying him? I don't know. I've just heard some teaching and I find it interesting. Well, that's nice, but like, it's not enough to be confused about him. You should really be confused after you read everything about him, right? <laughs> or you, as many people do, when they do investigate and read the Gospels and explore Jesus, they find him to be the most compelling person in history. And the final type we, are, we see here is modeled for us is con the contemplative, and that's, that's really Nicodemus. Uh, we don't know that Nicodemus was a disciple yet. Um, we, do, we know from chapter 19 that we think he became one by then, um, but certainly he's contemplating. He's, he stands up for Jesus and goes, well, you don't judge a, to the Pharisees, and he's one of them. And he says, guys, we don't, we don't judge somebody without uh, you know, actually investigating, right? And, and they, of course, do what people do when they don't have a good answer. They attack him. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Galilee was the sticks. I'm, I'm not suggesting anyone in this room feels this way, but living in a cosmopolitan urban city, just imagine a friend comes up to you and just the normal attitude our city would have. I've just met the most brilliant, compelling, funny, interesting, gifted person I have ever met in my entire life. And they grew up on a pig farm in Alabama shooting guns. Now, can you imagine telling that to your friend with a PhD from MIT? What would their first thought be? <laughs> yeah, sure, right? That's cute. Nobody, nobody like that comes from rural Alabama. That's exactly the attitude the Pharisees had about Jesus. The truth was, Jesus wasn't even born in Galilee, but don't ever let facts get in the way of a good preconceived notion. The Pharisees demonstrate a lack of knowledge and political honesty and utter arrogance about these things. Their pride and hatred kept them from being able to actually see Jesus. But Nicodemus was willing to search, evidently willing to investigate, willing to contemplate and pursue. And I, I would say this, that for me, I, I hold this out sometimes in conversation I have with someone who's not a believer. I'm like, if there is a 1% chance that Jesus was who he says he was, and he is offering living water, eternal life 
to those who will come. And all they have to do is come with a thirst in their soul. You don't have to achieve. You don't have to check, do a checklist. There's no big process. There is water for a thirsty soul. If there's a 1% chance that that's real, isn't that worth considering at least? Exploring? Investigating? Don't throw your brain out and say, well, I guess I just have to believe. That's not even in Scripture. There were people like Thomas who followed Jesus and still had doubts after the resurrection, right? So it's okay to have your doubts. But inviting people to come and experience life is is such a beautiful opportunity for God's people. And it's an opportunity and invitation for you today, wherever you are. Maybe this is the first time you've ever contemplated the thirst that's in your soul and the fact that Jesus offers you living water. And so you can believe in that today. You can take that step today. It's not, like I said, some big process. It is faith in Jesus. It's asking Jesus to be that living water to your soul. It's believing that he can be that because he died on the cross in your place. He took your sin, your evil deeds, your evil desires on himself so that you could then be made free and clean and whole and could have rivers of living water flowing through you. And if you're a Christian, the invitation, as I said, is come back like I did recently. Lay down the shovel and taste that living water you desperately need. We're gonna move into a time of response, communion for those that are followers of Jesus. And we're gonna put John 37, 37, 38 up on the screen just for you to contemplate as we move into this time. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I love that Jesus established communion as a physical sign of the satisfaction, the food that we eat, the water, the liquid that we drink. And it is him. He says, it's me. It's not your achievement. It's not your success. It's not your career. It's not your family. It's not your money. It's not your experiences. It's not your hopes and your dreams in this life. It's me. And he's willing to meet anyone in this room here today. If you're a follower of Jesus, take communion in joy. Reminding yourself, especially I would argue as you drink the cup, that Jesus satisfies that deep thirst in your soul. If you're not a follower of Jesus, today we invite you to take Jesus. Use this time to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just pray. Say, Jesus, be that living water to me. I need it. And then you can mark on your connection card, or you can find me after the service, or you can go over to one of the folks by the window for the prayer time uh, during, uh, during the rest of the service. We'll be there to pray with you. Let's go ahead and stand together. If you're a Christian, anytime over this next song, step out, take communion. Um, If you're not a follower of Christ, we'd ask you to not take this until you have taken Christ. Let's respond together.